0: The National Archives podcast series Big Ideas, The Future of the Past Presented by Zira Lalji This talk was recorded on the 9th of May 2016 at the National Archives, Kew. You know, I must start by saying uh salamu or Ya Ali Madad which is the traditional greeting um, from the traditions that I come from An equally good afternoon. I must uh, also say that I stand here today in front of you most humbly, but confidently, as a student of Muslim civilizations, rather than as an expert in a particular domain. You know, I have been a student, I would say, of studies of Muslim civilizations for the last 10 years, almost. The first three years of formal study, two of which gone into studying Islam and humanities, and I'll uh, share with you later the context, or hopefully the, the context of why I study Islam together with humanities, will come through with the approach that I will take to the presentation today. And then the third year uh, to studying how the how the British were looking at conserving their heritage, you know, here in the UK, as well as, you know, abroad. And uh, as part of my MSc, I then went on to work with the English Heritage, which is now called Historic England, or has been renamed as Historic England, on exploring some of the monastic traditions, uh, as well as creating space for a dialogue with, between the government and some Muslim academics here in the UK to start conversing about Muslim heritage here in the UK. So this is a little bit of, of uh, um, my background, and today I stand in front of you. Before we actually go further, I would like to share with you an overview of what the Institute is all about. Although my talk today is influenced by the Institute's position of looking at Islam both as a faith as well as, a, as a civilization, any and all views presented here are my own musings. And they they don't clash necessarily with the Institute's position, but Institute may differ from any particular stance that I would take. But broadly speaking, the Institute of Ismaili Studies was founded in 1977, and its programs encourage a perspective that is not just confined to the theological and religious heritage of Islam, but also seek to explore the relationship of religious ideas to broader dimensions of society and culture within the context of muslim societies the institute's programs are informed by the full range of diversity of cultures in which islam is practiced today and i guess this is one of the key features that differentiates the study of islam at the institute from various other endeavors around the world because we are educated to look at Islam in its full breadth as a civilization, as a faith that inspired and gave rise to a civilization, rather than in a narrow sense of of what one would call ibadat, or one would call prayers and tenants, uh, would be. So, you know, within this context, uh, what I've prepared for today is is a short but contextual exploration of some of the early manuscripts from Muslim civilizations. These are the folios that I'm going to show you here. They have been in the custody of the, in, the Institute of Ismaili Studies f- since they were acquired. And very recently, some of them, not all of them, have been moved out to the Aga Khan Museum in Canada, which is a, which is a new entity that specializes in conservation. Then we would, I would like to share with you a glimpse into the history of Ismaili Muslims, again through looking at uh, some of the texts. And then woven into these, these two aspects, there would be some research and publications that are done by the Institute, um, as well as a couple of digital adaptations. These are creative digital adaptations that are undertaken by the Institute, and then leave you with the final note on some of the other cultural interventions undertaken by the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. So this is more or less the skeleton of, of what we're going to be spending time on today. So to start off with, the Holy Quran, as you know, has been an inexhaustible source of intellectual and spiritual reflection throughout the Muslim history, giving rise to exquisite calligraphic arts on the one hand, but also to ever-proliferating commentaries and interpretations. Many of these have remained accessible only to scholars and specialists because they are intellectually demanding. However, there are some commonly written commentaries uh, and works which remain untranslated and therefore um, are only accessible in the primary languages. In these folios, What I have prepared for you is a glimpse into how we can look perhaps, looking at the Quran as a script in progress, rather than as a given um, solid word-by-word command, day one or the birth of Islam. Um, So what I've chosen here is a few folios and leaves from very early Qurans uh, dating back to the 8th century, where you can possibly appreciate the evolution of of script itself. And with it, you can see the development in tandem of an emerging um, civilization, step by step. So these some of these early Qurans, for example, the folio that you see on your left, it is actually um, ink on parchment. Muslims had not... Yet, discovered uh, the art of paper making by that time. But nonetheless, it happens shortly after. By the time the second manuscript was produced, the Muslims could already print paper—not print paper, but produce paper. But um, use of paper was reserved for administrative purposes only. So, both these manuscripts are still on on parchment, and you can see. For those who are familiar with the Arabic language and particularly with any readings, contemporary readings of the Quran, you would notice that these manuscripts are completely missing what we would call diacritic marks. These diacritic marks are pretty much like accents in Latin or French, which give the right intonation and the right way of reading the text. So it is quite intriguing that you know some of the early scripts they were completely lacking that kind of a system to assist the reader meaning which that that multiple inferences can be made of it. A is that Quran as the word suggests or means speech is actually a compilation of the sayings and utterances of Prophet Muhammad himself at various occasions these various occasions could have been any ranging from resolving a dispute to giving someone an advice to attending a funeral, um, etc. And all of these verses that are or revelation as it was called or, or it is it can be broadly rendered into and then verses are these um, specific utterances. These were memorized by people. So by the by the time the prophet muhammad passed away in 622 there wasn't a written quran as such that was left behind so not until after 20 years that the first first endeavor begins of the compilation of the quran so there are several complexities in relation to you know how do you now look into an oral tradition oral culture and translate it into the written word. And from this endeavor emerged a whole sciences, one can argue, of how the Quran should be compiled. How to authenticate which reports and which not, etc. So in other words, there is a big process that goes with compilation of the Quran. And as a result of that, there are three different distinct corpses of materials that emerge. One is the Qur'an itself, which is the direct revelation and the word of God. Then there are Ahadith Al-Qudsi, which are revelations by God. but Prophet said that these were in contextual understanding. He, he kind of added some of his own interpretations into them. And then uh, finally, the Ahadith, the Hadith literature, which also emerges from what, I, I shouldn't be saying that what doesn't make it into Quran, but there is a massive, massive exercise of what constitutes Quran and revelation and what does not. Right. So the ahadith, for example, are compilations of the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, which do not become canonized until 200 years since after the death of the Prophet. So again, an exploration of these kind of early manuscripts, as a student to me, it led to uh, a sense of appreciation of emergence of an entity rather than an entity well-defined at the time. This again is a a very early manuscript from North Africa. Uh, It's on vellum with opaque watercolour gold and ink. And again, it is from a different dynasty. So although the earlier manuscript was also from North Africa around the same time, you can see that a kind of a royal patronage is quite visible here. And you also notice the red dots here, they're not so visible, but the red dots, if you see them on the script, this is one of the first or earliest attempts to intonation of the text. Right? So again, this, this, is, this is quite an exquisite piece. Um, um, as I mentioned earlier, that this is also now housed at uh, the Aga Khan Museum in, um, in Toronto. The next piece I have is pretty similar but now here you can see that not only the intonation marks are there but also the diacritics are there you see some small lines double lines this shows that within the same century the script is is advancing it is also because you know within the course of a century and a half Muslims came to rule a vast expanse of territory ranging from Arabia to Middle East to to further into India and Central Asia it was um, it was a necessity actually for people who were not able to re- or who were not native to arabic to be able to read the quran uh, properly so in that sense the scripts are very much responding to the political uh, and geographical changes that are happening within the community but mind you these um, scripts are not necessarily for the public as we know these are usually sent out to from the central rulers or f- from the caliphates which were the central, central powers to their then emirates or smaller uh, representatives everywhere, which marked the ruler's authority, the caliph's authority over the matters of faith, as well as set out a monumental image of um, of that dynasty of yeah. Some of them were actually kingdoms. They were not necessarily like the Mongols, for example. So a couple of further manuscripts, which are you know, showing developments in the same lieu. This is a very famous blue Quran, again, found from North Africa, Iraq, or Iran, is again a a good example that both styles are still in prevalence, you know, so you don't necessarily have diacritic marks on every single script that goes out uh, in the time. But by the time you reach the 13th century, mid 12th century and the 13th century, you see that there are there are pronounced standards now which have been set out as to how to read the Quran and the whole process of the compilation from the compilation to how to make it accessible to these various ethnicities which are now becoming muslim how to make Quran accessible to them and how to make them make it readable properly, it takes a few centuries. So this was, you know, a short glimpse into kind of what, what I found fascinating about the compilation and about the, the scripts and evolution of scripts in the, of the Qur'an. Tailored to this, in tandem to these manuscripts, what I would also like to highlight that there is a civilization. There is cultural development and there is civilization that is growing together with it. So, of course, there is intellectual endeavors. There, uh, there are um, artistic endeavors. And within the realm of intellectual endeavors related to Quran, um, there is a vast corpus of what we call tafsirs or Quranic commentaries which are available, but which have been very little studied in English for scholarly purposes. And these commentaries actually show, depending on the kind of methodology that each Mufastir or each commentator takes, how deeply, over the course of several centuries, Muslims have engaged with Quran in minute details, from ranging from hermeneutics to minute details of linguistics to exploring context, for example, you know, one of the, 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 the corpuses that developed around understanding Qur'an better for those who were removed from the context of the Qur'anic revelation, but also those for those who were living in Arabia but were now removed a few centuries already or a few generations already from the time of the Prophet Muhammad, there is a whole corpus within the, the commentary text called Asbab al nuzul which is the reasons for those revelations is to contextualize those verses in a way that they become comprehensible to the people. And that shows a great intellectual endeavor which went on, and it's, it's in its um, early phases of research at the moment. The Institute of Ismaili Studies is actually take, undertaking some some of that research under its wings. So we have... Under the Quranic Studies department or unit, we have a lot of books that have come out already relating to the, the tafsir tradition, which is the commentary tradition, and there is more being printed. And the Institute's vision by conducting research into and teaching about the interpretive traditions is to advance knowledge about the entire spectrum of traditional sources, and to promote a general understanding of the plurality of interpretations throughout the history and the various historical contexts. There is an endeavor that looks into the types of methodologies in particular which have shaped those contexts and how those commentators have responded to those contexts. The Chronic Studies series actually aims to to develop materials which are from broad chronological range as well and they want to make it available, translate into English and make it available to a more wider audience eh, in the world. So that is more or less, you know, the Quran and the segment of the Quran and and a few initiatives at the Institute I would conclude here. And then go on to some of the early encyclopedic traditions that developed over the 10th and 11th century CE. And these are particularly, these episodes, or al Rasail, episodes as Rasail, of al Safa, they actually um, were written with a particular goal. This is a text from the classical period of Islam, where Muslims have now become familiar with the Greek texts, Various different sciences are now already at, a, at an advanced understanding stage, and therefore the question uh, of the need of religion. So this is a time when there is a, a very, very sharp difference between those who are proclaiming the tradition to remain as is to those who are theologians within the community to those who are philosophers. And to some extent, this is a period of an internal conflict based on these different domains of knowledge, each, each wanting to claim the totality, the absolute authority over what an understanding of human existence in this world is. Um, and written in this time, actually, Safa is a is a very extensive work to give you a glimpse into, into this, not a glimpse, I think this is about the only slide, but to, to a little bit of a context, that, you know, like our today's essays, each of these episodes actually start with a particular goal. So the Institute has published all these translated works. So the episodes, like our essays, each of them start by stating its particular goal. All of them contain a core of technical teachings and a conclusion regarding to the which is the inner meaning of those contents. The text contain frequent invocations to the learning brethren, the brothers, that is, the elect who are studying these sciences that enhance their didactical and exhortative style. These invocations mean that the students will be awakened from the sleep of the matter and the negligence of ignorance if they apply themselves to the study with the assistance ta'id, of the spirit coming by God. One of the most prominent features of this encyclopedia is its reworking of foreign science contents. Various cultural elements come together in the epistles, Babylonian, Indian, Iranian, astrological, Indian and Persian narratives, biblical quotations, um, etc., and also references to New Testament and Christian Gnosis. A very good survey of these can be found in Netten in 1991. Most attention in the epistles, however, has been paid to the Greeks, from the so called pre Socrates time to Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, and Stoics. The Ikhwan, for example, are well informed about the Platonic view on pleasures and about Plato's concept of the soul as consisting of three distinct parts, the rational soul, which resides in the head, the inascible soul, which resides in the heart and is the seat of courage, and the ap- appetitive soul, the seat of desire, which resides in the abdomen. So the sense of what constitutes as a truly Muslim science, according to the epistles, is largely a product of the the ideological commitment of the authors themselves. The Ikhwan see the ultimate goal of each religious experience as separating the soul from the ties of the matter and purifying it to achieve happiness in hereafter. As purification can be reached by following prophetic revelation, with the help of reason and the ancient sciences, sciences, the study of which is considered by orthodox at the time, and particularly the theologians, as a vehicle of heresy and even atheism, are fully legitimized in these epistles. For the authors of this encyclopedia, the sciences explain the deep reality of universe and so allow rational understanding of the contents of revelation, and of the religious law. From the standpoint of Muslim religion, the encyclopedia represents a possible solution to the problem of reconciling reason and faith, philosophy, and religion. And there are other texts dating back to this time. One of our very well-known, uh, within, within the community tradition internally, intellectuals called Nasir Husro, he wrote a particular treatise on Reconciling reason and revelation as well. So, reason and revelation uh, was very much um, a topic, a current topic at the time. Following on from here, this is the second segment of the large corpus of um, of the text that I wanted to bring up about. The third corpus, part of which is in the collection of the Aga Khan Museum, but not all of it is about the collection of stories. We all know about uh, the Thousand and One Nights, for example, so in the same liu. Uh, this is another col- collection of stories called Kalila Wadimna, which is a story of, um, of a jackal who becomes envious of the lion, the king of the jungle, lion's friendship with a bull, and how cunningly he works his way to get them both to to quarrel with each other and then to finally, you know, w- which leads finally to the death of the bull, basically. But this particular text has got several stories within it. For example, this, this manuscript is about the story of crows, which is, um, you know, this flock of crows is harassed by owls, and then the crows, instead of fighting back with force, they fight with intellect, they fight with... With strategy. So in, this entire, in its entirety, this corpus or this book is rendered as a good leading political text for, for those who are you know, in the various ranks of, um, of leadership. And it's been like this. It's been regarded as such for the last 1,200 years almost. Before I move on, actually this, this text As a student, for me, it is also significant, and that's why I've brought it here to your attention, is that this is also a borrowing from the ancient Sanskrit text, Panchatatra. And Panchatatra is is not entirely about the politics or about how to run political affairs, but nonetheless, some of these stories have been taken from there, which suggests to me that Muslims were actually not not ashamed or not shy of borrowing f- knowledge from wherever they would find it right and then make it their own an attribute and an attitude which is less found amongst muslims today but is much needed nonetheless so th- this is a little bit of of kalila dimna and these these are the 16th and 17th century hebrew and Latin translations of Khalila Dimna. who, so I would assume that others also found in these stories relevant to their own context. So wonderful example of, of the text moving from, from the hands of one civilization into another, into another. Um, however, these texts are not in our possession. You know, they, I just found it interesting that these, this text was also translated into into Latin and Hebrew. large collection of manuscript materials at the Institute of Ismaili Studies is from the Fatimid period, which is when we, the Ismailis, were ruling North Africa. This was the, you know, within internal references of our own history, this was the classical period where the Fatimid empire grew from North Africa which is present-day Tunisia and Algeria, into Egypt. The city of, of Cairo was founded by one of our imam caliphs, al of whom the His Highness uh, the Aga Khan IV is a descendant. So they founded the city of New Cairo, which was a palatial city at the time. And again, at the peak of their, their endeavors and their, their splendor, they, had, they sponsored great intellectual endeavors, and we have a vast corpus of these available at the Institute for a Study. Some of the pages are very fragile, but they are nonetheless um, available through other means like microfiche or, or I would say, um, sometimes even by fax, right, but materials which are not faxable, uh, which are not microficheable. So I wouldn't go into the details of which manuscript comes from whom, but most of these manuscripts represent some of the great thinkers of of the Ismaili world itself. Then, you know, after... So the Ismailis rule East um, Egypt and then, you know, expanded from Egypt into parts of Middle East. At some point, they, they ruled Mecca as well. And then... India for about 200 years, so from 909 until 1171, which is where they began to disintegrate from within. And one of the viziers within the Fatimid court, Salahuddin Ayyubi, he overthrew finally the Fatimids and founded the Ayubi dynasty. This was the time when the Ismailis, they had to, to go away from, they had to vacate Egypt and they came to this obscure landscape of Iran, and they lived in these mountainous uh, fortresses and you know, secluded, isolated premises. And for the first 10 years or so, there were intense civil wars from the Seljuks, which were also a, a ruling dynasty in the region at the time. But nonetheless, there are some great preservations of, um, of intellectual endeavor, throughout this period which are also available at the institute for a study and a a glimpse into the castles and you know some stories and narratives about how the Ismailis managed to survive the Mongol invasion have been preserved and have been uh, have been told by Nadia in her book of surviving the Mongols in the same lieu what happened was when we vacated Egypt and we went into Persia from that current also developed a current of um, of dawa, which is the the summoning people to the religion in in India, you know, uh, early dawa activities were there in India. Some would say since the early 10th century, but nonetheless, not until the 13th century we find some material evidence of you know the Ismailis wanting to now also establish themselves in India. And Indian Ismaili history is very, very little studied as compared to the Fatimid and the Alamud period within the Institute. But nonetheless, it is one of the living traditions and one of, the, one of the very widespread traditions in the contemporary world of Ismailis today. So, Institute has a lot of manuscripts, digital archives, photographs, etc. from this period as well, which are currently in the process of cataloguing. Having said that, some of the published manuscript collection catalogues of the Institute are these, and uh, there are more coming, particularly of the the script that I showed you here, this script. The Ismailis, because they had to, after the Mongols, the Ismailis came to, the Shia in general and the Ismailis in particular came to be persecuted, so they had to live in or in disguise, and several hundred years they lived in disguise. So, for example, the far right manuscript page is the 99 names of Allah, but not written in Arabic. This is written in a script they developed called Kojki, which is just a script. You can write any language in this script. So this is one of the tools which they developed to survive in, in what could be otherwise a hostile environment. And some very interesting manuscripts from this time, uh, survive today. But the earliest Kochki manuscript we have is, is 18th century. They don't go really date back to the 13th century, I would say. There are some general collections that the Institute hosted for a very long time and curated for a very long time, but as we now have much better facilities in the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, all of these have, have moved out have been moved out there. Uh, this is the website of the Aga Khan Museum, and a lot of these materials have already been digitized. I shouldn't be saying that you know, we want to just create more showcases of these materials, because we haven't got a museum of our own. That's not really the purpose of these museums, uh, this particular museum. It is rather an endeavor, as His Highness has put, to bring civilizations together, create dialogues to get people to talk about each other and take interest into each other's pasts and fates and histories so in that sense um the aga khan museum's got a a vast mandate these materials based on you know what we have discovered you know one of the challenges that one finds not just as a student, but also as an explorer within the Islamic studies, is that materials are fragmented. You know, you find a folio of the Quran in one place, 10 somewhere else, 15 somewhere else, and, you know, 50 probably in someone's house that have never been found yet. This is one of the major difficulties of of being able to study, you know, the, the context of the various Muslim civilizations and cultures. So, but nonetheless, you know, whatever we have available, some of these books are of good educational value which are being taught into our religious schools of the Ismaili's and they have been completely revamped from the doctrinal, um, theological perspectives into a much wider, broader context of Islam within which we now see ourselves and feel more confident because we are no longer in that taqiyah, we're no longer in in a period where we must um, protect ourselves from any potential persecutions. So we're, we're fairly open, as Ismailis, about who we are. But within the context of the larger um, Muslim community, the global Muslim community, which is referred to as Ummah. And Ummah is not just one, one interpretation. Ummah is several interpretations. And these interpretations are of how different people either earlier or throughout the history, have interpreted the key messages of the prophetic revolution. That is where the differences lie. But that is also where the richness lies, because then we have a plurality of, of interpretations. We have, therefore, a rich understanding of Muslim civilizations um, at, our, at our disposal. I think the time would not allow us to look into a couple of digital renditions. These are a couple of digital renditions that we have launched on our website. For example, this is a rendition of, a 11th, of an 11th century travel log by the famous uh, Nasri Husrow. Uh And he went up to 42, well, 42 well-researched, but there are possibly more destinations that he went to. You know, he set out from Balkh and then took a long round back to Balkh throughout the Muslim lands, uh, and he's left a very rich travel log. So what we've done is um, we've digitized parts of it and we have re-rendered, you know, parts of it into into modern language for modern audiences this is available at www.nasirkhusro no not org i'm sorry that's for the akdn www.nasirkhusro.iis.ac.uk uh, based on some of the data that we had to our disposal uh, we've also we're also in a process of rendering the fatimid cairo in a 3d web Um, format for the first time ever and this has been a massive undertaking by some of the volunteers within the community. So again, the institute is hosting uh, and has provided the research and other uh, supports, but largely it's the volunteers within the community who are working on a on a digital rendition. So for the first time ever, our students in the classrooms, religion, cr- religious studies classrooms, would be able to see the splendor uh, that their ancestors lived you know, about a thousand years ago. Um, this is again a very useful resource for the architectural heritage of Muslims. It's an extensive archive of almost any site that could potentially be called Muslim. It's not denominational, and has images, publications, um, you know, architectural discussions, etc., related to a vast number of sites around the globe. And this is an endeavor of the Aga Khan Trust for Culture, which is our sister organization. Aga Khan Award for Architecture again is a huge archive, as well as being an award for for the architectural endeavor with a difference architectural endeavor that works with the tradition with the modernity to meet the needs of modern uh, societies today and finally aga khan historic cities program is actually active on the ground conserving real estates and and assets but mainly from a sustainability point of view is th- the key aim as that of the aga khan development network is to raise the standards of living, is to enhance the quality of life wherever the Muslims are. So most of these initiatives, cultural initiatives of conservation, are geared towards enhancing the sustainability and the, the economic and, and cultural development um, of the local population there. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.